0: Let's pray. Lord God, as we come before Your Word tonight, we confess that we are full of weakness and frailty. We're tired at the end of the day. There is much on our mind about the coming week. Much on our mind still from the preceding week. Come, O Lord, and speak that Word to our hearts, which is true, infallible, eternal word which only You, Holy Spirit, can speak to us by Your Word as we read it and hear it preached. We are mindful of the weakness that resides in the pulpit and the pew. Come and give us all strength. that We may attend Your Word with diligence and love, obedience, draw us more and more unto Christ. We ask it in His name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus 32. Exodus 32, hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 30 down through 35. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, Please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people. Because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So far, the reading and hearing of God's holy and inspired word, may he add his blessing to it. Well, you probably picked up on it while we're working our way even through just these four or five verses. Um, In 30 through 34, the, the, the word sin occurs eight times. That's a lot just FYI. That's, that's a lot of sin um, for such a short little passage. So as we begin to, to work our way through these verses, thinking about sin, about the effects of sin, I do want to ask you that question. What? How, how often do you think about it, you know, the effects of sin? All these things in our minds and hearts that work their way out of us, that that go against God and go against what He has proclaimed to us and and requires of all of His creatures. Those things that we think that that transgress His law, those things that we say that go against Him, all those things that we do that don't line up with His Word. But then the broader category too, not just our actual sins, but, but the sin that has come upon the world or we would call the world fallen. That effect of sin that has come as a result of Adam and Eve transgressing there in the garden. What are the effects of sin? Confession of Faith chapter 6 explains that by their fall, Adam and Eve brought to us four distinct things. There was a removal of our original righteousness so that we're not like we once were when God created us. There's a removal of our communion with God now so that we're not friends of God because our sin has put Him at a distance from us. Our sin has put a separation between us and our Creator. Thirdly, they they say that we have become dead in sin. That's Ephesians 2 language, that we're dead in sin. We need Christ in order to be made alive. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. And fourthly, the confession says that we've become wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Now that's the one that we feel. That's the one that we have a sense of. And you feel it. We are wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. That is to say that we are totally depraved. There's not a part of us that is unstained by sin, and you see it in your daily lives. It's it's the tension we have in relationships where we want to put ourselves above other people. It's the tension that we feel between um, us and God, where we're not quite sure if we really want to live the way that He's called us to live in His Word. But there's more than that too. Um, the disease that we all face from day to day, week to week, and year to year. Those, those illnesses that we are continually praying to be relieved in the lives of God's people, these are results of the fall. These are results of this whole defilement in all the parts and faculties of our soul, but our bodies. Those of you that know, we were just talking in the session meeting of, of, of how all of us seem to know or have relatives that struggle with, with the breakdown of their mind and, and the, the wickedness of such a disease that takes our family and friends from us. These are the effects of sin. These are the results of sin, but there is still yet one worse than This, in our house, this is the way we ask it. What does sin deserve? Death. Incidentally, it's also the same thing that mosquitoes deserve in our house. Death. The Shorter Catechism, what does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in the one to come. It's not just about going to hell in the future, Sin deserves wrath and curse now, presently. The fact that we're not suffering every moment of our existence is a grace of God to His common people that He's made. And We need to be thinking about this as we enter into this passage. The effects of sin and what we deserve for our sin and how we deal with our sin. In the previous passage, we saw how Moses came down from the mountain and did battle against the idolatry of the people. And this is the proper role of the mediator between God and His people. He is to deal with sin. He, he crushed the idol to dust, remember? And that weird thing where He made them drink it. He, he chastised Aaron by a one question. At the command of the Lord, He sent the Levites out into the camp with their swords Unsheathed, so that they would judge the people for their unrepentance and their idolatry. And now in these verses, we see another aspect of Moses' mediatorial role. As, as he is the go-between between the people and God, as he, as he goes to God to hear on behalf of the people, and as he comes back from God to speak to the people the words God has, there is another role he plays in this passage, and it is that he pleads for the people. He goes to God and, and pleads for them. He, he leans into compassion. You can see the tenderness of Moses here. He, he knows the effects of sin. He knows how it has corrupted the lives of His people. He knows that it deserves death. He knows the deadly results that sin will bring. And so He goes to God on behalf of the people. And you know, this... This act of Moses in, in these few verses of him going sort of with this tenderness and compassion before the Lord on behalf of the people, it seems a little abrupt About as we compare it to the previous passage. Um, you know, He has just told the men to go out and slaughter the people of the community that didn't repent of their sin, and 3,000 men died. And all of a sudden he says, we need to figure out how to get atonement for the rest of you. All right? It seems a little strange, but, but this is it's the role of a good pastor that that in one moment Moses condemns sin and excises it from among the people and in the next moment he comes with hands of healing seeking to draw the people to see their need of salvation to see their need to repent and turn back to God it's, it's marks of good pastoring and good shepherding firm against sin and tender toward the sinner and that's what we see in Moses he he is firm And direct in our previous passage, but in this one, he goes with an eye of compassion and hands of healing to seek to bring the people to a good understanding of their situation. And he seeks to make atonement for them. So the previous day, Moses had been doing battle against their sin. And in this new morning, he seeks to heal the wounds that sin has inflicted on his people. And so we really, there's really three sort of sections to this passage. Moses first reminds the people of their sin and tells them what he's about to go do at the top of the mountain. Then he proposes a solution to the Lord, something he thinks will solve the problem. And then the Lord sort of rejects his solution and responds to the request that Moses makes. So we're going to work through in those three passages. Look at verse 30, though. Let's, let's, let's go back to the text. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Just if you're counting, you have sinned a great sin. There's two. And then towards the end, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So all of those words for sin are actually in the Hebrew and we count them. There's three just in that one verse. Moses is speaking to those... To those who survived the slaughter, there's a lot of people in Israel. There may have been 2 million people in, in the whole camp. Only 3,000 died according to the previous passage. But, but still, he is speaking to those who survived the sword of the Levites. These are the ones that presumably, when the Levites came, their weapons unsheathed, and they said, have you repented of your idolatry? These on the next morning are the ones who had repented, who had come to the Lord's side as a Levites Came around, And you, you can imagine that they were probably feeling some relief. You know, they, they might have actually slept well the night before. Now, not, not if one of their sons or, or daughters or fathers or mothers had been slaughtered in that punishment. But they arise to a new day, glad that they can open their eyes again, and they, they meet with this accusation from Moses. You have sinned a great sin. And, and, and we really need to sense their surprise. They've acknowledged their sin, right? In the the previous day. Maybe they feel like they've turned away from that idolatrous scene with the golden bull. Moses, why are you bringing this up again? I thought we finished this yesterday. Why is this all happening again? And there's there's two parts of, of verse 30, what Moses says to them, that explain this for us. The very beginning there, You have sinned a great sin. You need to see the redundancy of that sentence, of that phrase. In Hebrew, you don't usually need both words sin in that sentence. You could say, and and really communicate it just fine, you sinned greatly. Or you could say, you committed a great sin. But do you see what he says? You have sinned a great sin. The verb means the same thing as the noun, and yet he uses both. He's being redundant on purpose. He's reminding them of the magnitude of their iniquity. He wants them not to forget the great violation that they have committed. You, you, you didn't just sort of wander off the path for a second. You broke the first Two commandments that your covenant God gave to you. He said you will worship none other and you will worship Me in the right way. And you broke them both. It barely took a moment for you to blink before you'd made this idol up for yourselves. You have sinned a great sin. And now He says, I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement. That that word is significant. Perhaps. Perhaps. Here, here's the compassion of Moses sort of peeking out in the midst of verse 30. He, he wants to seek forgiveness for them. He, he wants to see them brought back to God. He wants to see atonement made. But even he is not sure if the Lord will grant the forgiveness that they request. Perhaps. Such a great sin that they have committed that Moses has, but hope the Lord will respond, but no guarantee. We're going to talk about it when we get closer to the end. Christian, mind you, we have every guarantee in Christ that the Lord has forgiven us. Moses gave no such assurance to these Israelites. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. They may have escaped yesterday's sword, but their rebellion is so great that there is no certainty that the Lord will retain them as His people. Why does He do this? Why does Moses address these two things? Why this sort of redundant statement of the magnitude of their sin? And Why does He not give a full assurance of their forgiveness that He hopes is coming? Well, for one, Moses doesn't yet know what God is going to do with them. He knows perhaps what he's intending to request when he gets up there. But he doesn't really know how God's going to respond yet. Moses knows still too that, that sin is not without punishment. And he knows that, that this truth is too easily forgotten. He does not want the people to begin to treat sin lightly. Well, I didn't die yesterday when the swords were going around. I guess I'm okay. He doesn't want them to take sin Lightly. Calvin says this Moses would humble them by setting the greatness of their crime before them in order that they may earnestly give themselves to repentance. You know, we may be able to give them in the best light that they have acknowledged their sin and that they have confessed their sin, but it's been a day. Can we really see true repentance in their lives yet? Can we really see that they've turned back to the Lord? Moses goes to them with these words seeking to jar them from from any sense of laziness they would begin to feel. He, He wants them not to fall asleep. He doesn't want them to think on sin lightly. He wants them to continue to push and pursue the repentance that the previous day's confession began in their hearts. and the same is true for you today beware on thinking of sin but lightly the, the the world treats sin like a virtue this is why we see the same tendency in our lives is because we live too close to the world beware how close you live to the world lest you begin to treat sin like a virtue. Israel, do you realize that they may not have imagined the golden bull to have been so offensive as God thought it. It wasn't that bad. We, we were sort of at the same time trying to worship Yahweh. And then it brought death into the camp. It's serious now. People have bled and died because of this sin that they committed. It's real to them now. Beloved, a little sin is never okay. It's not just that you're not supposed to take the big sins lightly. You're not supposed to take any sin lightly. little sin is never okay. A little greed, a little arrogance, a little Sabbath violation, a little lust, a little anger, a little resentment, a little anxiety, a little a little ingratitude, a little sin, a little bit of it is never okay. Never. Be careful how familiar we get with the world lest we begin to think on sin lightly. Do you remember what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5? Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And at that point, we're all kind of going, well, I don't have to worry about any of those. Go back and read. I think we have plenty of those to worry about in our own hearts. But the rest of them, they damn us all. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you can't parse that any other way than just the way he says it. A little sin is never okay. Instead of treating sin lightly, we need to follow Moses' push here in his addressing of the people. We ought to see the heinousness of sin and be driven to repentance. We see how deadly and dangerous and filthy it is. We see the mercy of God that is available to us in Christ, and we turn from our sin, and we turn to God in fresh obedience. You know, here's the question. Do you brush your sin aside? Or does your sin, when the Spirit is pleased to reveal it to you, does your sin make you more aware of your great need for deliverance? That's what Moses is seeking to do here. He's seeking to convince the people that they need their sin to be dealt with that that they can't just be happy that they're alive on that morning and hope that God will forget what they have done. They need sin to be dealt with. Why? Because it brings death and they need deliverance. And the same is true of us. We need deliverance from our sin and you know, true worship of God, true living before him. True freedom before our Heavenly Father will only come when you realize the immensity of the sin from which you need to be delivered. And then you will realize what God has done for you. And then you will praise Him and love Him and worship Him. They need to remember how bad they've messed up. But Moses is tender and compassionate. He thinks he has a solution for their sin. Look at 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has, here's the same phrase he told to them, sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. 32. But now if, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And we've talked about it before. Moses does not justify their sin. You know, remember when Aaron spoke back to Moses last week and and Moses says, what have you done? He says, oh, it's these evil people that you've left me with. Moses doesn't do that. Moses doesn't excuse the sin away. Moses shoots it straight. He doesn't excuse them. His approach to God is, is all a seeking after mercy. The people have sinned. And all that he can plead is exactly what he does there in 32. If you will forgive their sin. And that verse 32 is really a pain to study because so many people have different opinions about it. But it is meant to be sort of a choppy sentence. He doesn't finish the first part of the sentence. It's supposed to be two if-then clauses. On the one hand, if you will forgive their sin... And on the other hand, if not, and do you realize that he only has an attachment to the second part of the phrase? If not, blot me out of your book that you've written. It's as if he, he can't imagine the Lord actually forgiving them. He can't imagine the Lord doing this. And so he just sort of leaves it waiting. It's just, it would be so magnificent, so unexpected for the Lord to forgive their sin in this moment that he doesn't even have words to finish the phrase. But if not... Please blot me out of your book that you have written. What book? Is there a book that God wrote that we don't have? Is there a, do, are we missing the list of names at the back of our Bible somewhere where he wrote down Moses' name and, and maybe other names too? Uh, usually these references to the books that happen several times across the pages of Scripture fall into two category, one of two categories. Sometimes it's a book that, that is a record Um, of the lifespan of a person. Think about Psalm 139. David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. He says, Before I was even born, before I was even known in 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 my father's eye, before I was even a twinkle there, you knew all the days. All my days were written in your book. David's lifespan was written in this book he speaks of. But the other option is that it, there's books listed in Scripture that seem to record those who have been called to salvation by the Lord. Isaiah chapter 4 refers to some, something like this. For, uh, it says, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Everyone who's been written down for life. So it, it's either Moses's, um, all of Moses' days, and he says, you blot out my name from that book. Bring my days to an end sooner than you planned. Or it's, it's the book of life in which his salvation is found. Moses says, write my name out of that. Blot my name out of that. Either way, regardless of which book Moses is referencing, his meaning is clear. That he puts himself up as a substitute for the people. If you will punish them, this is his request, punish me instead. look look how far we've come with Moses. Do you remember back in chapters 3 and 4 and 5 how timid and mousy he was? Didn't even really want to believe what God was going to do. And I don't really want to talk to people. Can you find somebody to help me? And God was so kind and merciful toward him. He gave him his brother to help him talk. Right? Sort of wimpy Moses. Not anymore. Now... Now that hesitant, doubtful man has taken these people as his own and his tenderness for them overflows in this sort of sacrificial bid to, to relieve them of their sin and make atonement for them by putting himself in their place. All the lines that you're drawing to Jesus, yet yeah, keep those in the back of your head, but don't go all the way quite yet. All right, we're going to get there. Because... His offer is not sufficient. The Lord does not receive this solution. Look at 33. It's an implied negative answer, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. What's the implication there? Moses, you're not guilty of the sin that we're talking about right now. You were up here with me, not down there with them. You're not guilty of what they need to be punished for, and I won't punish An innocent man. The Lord says no to Moses' request. It it is those who have sinned against him that will lose their lives. Moses was the mediator of God's people, he was the go between. He heard from God for the people and he spoke for God to the people. But he was not able to make atonement for their sin. We don't have to go very far in scripture to find that this is true in, in many regards. Psalm 49, verse 7 says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Romans chapter 3 explains it a little further. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Moses is just another human being. He can't step in and be a good sacrifice. He can't step in and be a substitute for these wicked people. He's not that good. He's a good mediator. He's gotten there. He's not that good. And it's important for us to see this, that, that we too, we can't make up for our sin. There's nothing that you can do. You can't repay God for what you've done wrong. You can't somehow sort of weigh the scales out between good and bad and, 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 and come out good in the end. Yuki. You can't trade your life for someone else's, like Moses wants to. You may have a child or a parent or a sibling that you wish, Lord, if you would save them, you could gladly have my life. We can't trade like that with God. What can be done? That's the question that we're meant to be left with at the end of 33. Okay, if, if, if all of those who have sinned against Him, you're going to blot out, then what do we do? How does Moses reconcile this desire to, from, from 30 to atone for the sin of the people? What can possibly be done? Look at God's response in 34. Now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Two things here. First, see the mercy and grace of God that he assures them that he will continue to lead them to the promised land. Don't we expect him to say, I'm done with y'all. I am done. In fact, he threatened it back at the beginning of 32, didn't he? I'm going to consume them in order that I may make a great nation of Moses. That's sort of what we expect still. Maybe he won't consume them, but he'll just give up on them. Let them continue wandering until they slowly shrivel up and die in the desert. Isn't this the opposite of what we expect in our human understanding? Go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. My angel shall go before you. God has not changed. Remember, because He can't. He's incapable of change. He would continue to guide them in their journey. He would take His people into Canaan so that they may reside there as His chosen people. Listen, somebody wrote this and I forget who it was. Israel's unworthiness. Israel's unworthiness will not make the Lord adjust His purpose. What good news is that for us? That the unworthiness of God's chosen people will not make Him change His course. That that in Christ, any unworthiness that is left in us, and, and it's there, right? All that weakness, all that frailty, all that coldness and dullness and unfaithfulness, all of our unworthiness that's left in us, in Christ, the Lord will not adjust His purpose to redeem you. And so in those ebbs and flows of life where you would say in one moment that you feel closer to God than you've ever, ever felt before in your life, and, and just a week later you would say you wonder if you're even a believer, that, that if you would distrust yourself and trust Christ but just, you have every guarantee that the Lord is with you and that the Lord will not renege on His promises that He's made to you. He didn't save us because we're good or because we're worth something. We've been reading Ephesians and family worship for several weeks now, and there's these these rich truths at the beginning of Ephesians where where we, we talk about how God hasn't saved His people because we're holy and blameless, but what? God has saved us so that we would be holy and blameless. He didn't save you because you're worth something. He saved you because He loves you and He wants you to be worth something. And then there's that great passage in Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about how we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Worthless, hopeless, useless to God. And what? In His love. In that great love with which He loved us, He's made us alive together with Christ. Dead people can't do anything. God's made us alive and brought us to Himself. Your unworthiness from day to day, your remaining corruption and your fight against sin even your, your seeming losing of the battle from moment to moment will never make the Lord adjust His purpose to redeem you if you are His in Christ. Secondly, He says, I'm going to continue to be with you. I'm going to take you into the land. My angel is going to keep going before you. But then He, he says this may be sort of mysterious, enigmatic thing. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Even though there was suffering, previous in this chapter, when the swords came through the camp, the the wrath of God had yet to be appeased. There was a, a, a consequence for their sin, but there still needs to be punishment for the rebellion. You know, we may say the swords were for the unrepentant people, but he had not yet dealt with those who repented of the idolatry but still committed the idolatry. The reference to 35, this, this plague, is probably, this is how one man summarizes it, it's probably a summary of all that the people will have to endure in their years of wandering. It says it's probably a summary of the general penalty of the Lord that's imposed on Israel, namely, that none of this generation will see the land of promise. So the, the plague is, is sort of a, a general temporal judgment and he will make clear to them in the future that they will not enter into the land of promise. Now, there were other, other circumstances that may be sort of tacked underneath this, but, but the main thing being they're not allowed to enter in. But what about that phrase? In the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. There's this future sense to it. It's pointing forward to something. It just reminds me, I think it's It's appropriate for us to remember this. It just reminds me of that constant refrain of the Old Testament. That though God's people are unfaithful, God will be faithful. And He will redeem them from their sin. And one day He will put sin to death. One day He will ransom His people fully and finally from sin. As we saw at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when He says, I will put enmity between you speaking to the serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, sin and Satan and and the temptations of this life. Yes, indeed, they will be a plague upon God's people. But one day, someday, the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of sin and crush the head of Satan and all things will be made right. And this has happened on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what all of the Old Testament is pointing toward. It's what, it's what the Lord said in Genesis 22. Do you remember when, um, when Abraham goes up to the mountain with his son Isaac, the son he's been yearning for and pining after and hoping for, and finally, hope beyond all hope, and the son is born to his aged wife, and he gets word from the Lord one day that he needs to go and put him to death on top of the mountain. I'm pulling a Jonah, by the way, at that moment. I'm finding the opposite direction, and I'm going May the Lord make us as faithful as he made Abraham. Abraham goes up the mountain. You remember he's about to bring the the knife down and the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. what all of the Old Testament's pointing toward. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, that He sent His Son to bear the wrath of our idolatry and our rebellion. Moses couldn't stand in the place of the people. You you can't stand in your own place and survive. But Christ can, and he did. So that we can read from Paul in Romans five, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Peter in the second chapter of his first epistle, he himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, beloved. By His wounds, you have been healed. What does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in the one to come. And on the cross, the Lord Jesus took the weight of both for you so that you will never have to. May He help us to trust Him. Amen. Holy Spirit, please come from your place in heaven and write these truths upon our hearts. We love you, Lord. Come and help us that we may cling to Christ by faith, that we may know salvation from our sin, that we may know freedom and life everlasting. We are weak and needy. Come and help us, we pray for the glory of Christ. Amen.